A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars Day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline Podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series, The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond. Welcome to the Book Nook. We're the Lorehounds, your guides to the archipelago of Earthsea. I'm David. I'm John. And I'm Marilyn. And this is our coverage of the first book of the Earthsea series, A Wizard of Earthsea, by Ursula K. Le Guin. We will be dividing the podcast into two halves. The first part, we'll be avoiding any spoilers. And in the second part, we'll be getting into the details of the book in full. In the first part, we're going to be discussing our personal histories with the book our overall book nook coverage plans, the overall history of the entire series, and then our personal opinions about reading A Wizard of Ursi. After that, we'll get into a detailed discussion of the plot and the major themes of the book. We'll give you ample warning before we get into spoiler territory, so that if you haven't read the book yet, you won't be accidentally spoiled. While we enjoy discussing the book among ourselves, we also want to hear from you. And there are several ways you can join the discussion. First, you can send us an email at book at Also, you can visit our website at thelorehounds.com slash contact. And you can either use the entry form or leave us a voicemail using the built-in system. It's a super simple thing to use. You just click the record button and we can splice your audio right into the podcast. We'd also like to invite you to join our Discord server. The link is in the show notes below and on our website. We have a fun and welcoming community and dedicated channel set up to discuss the Earthsea series, and we'd love to see you there. Marilyn, you're finally in the Discord. I'm so excited. (laughs) You've been chatting away. You've been correcting me on my Tolkien stuff, which is great. (laughs) I tell you, once a professor, always a professor. I apologize. (laughs) I love it. uh, We've got a few more items before we get into the episode proper. Hey, if you have a minute, please rate and review our podcast on Apple Podcasts. If you've already done this, thank you. We've really noticed the uptick, and that means a lot to us. It helps us jump up in the rankings and get Ursula Le Guin's wonderful series read by more people. Well, you can always find our ad-supported podcast on our public feed. If you're interested in supporting us directly or would prefer to not have ads in your podcasts, we'd like to invite you to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you get early and ad-free access to all of our podcasts as well as the occasional post-credit bloopers, access to our Patreon-exclusive Second Breakfast podcast, and more. Check us out at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Lastly, stick around to the end of the podcast for programming notes about a remaining schedule for March Madness. 
All right. With all that out of the way, let's get to the episode proper. Um, Marilyn, why don't you start us off? And what is your personal history with the Wizard of Earthsea? Not the Wizard of Earthsea, a Wizard of Earthsea. I keep doing that. And I realized that I kind of have a little epiphany today. I was like, oh, a wizard, not the wizard. I think it's a really important distinction, but... David, you should have been a journalist because you just swap out articles like it's nothing. I do, man. I'm <laughs> chopping and I'm like a hoo hoo hoo, you know, fast knife work, chopping and changing. And I'm I'm glad that you said a wizard diversity because I have no experience with the wizard diversity. All right. Never, met him. <laughs> never talked to him. Never corresponded. Never even texted. So does Ged text? I'm sure that if to? he could, he would. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so anyway. Um, what is your, like, when did you encounter this book and Ursula Le Guin? And I know that you've um, uh, had some professional experience teaching some of this material. I think you've even corresponded with, um, with uh, Ursula. Uh, or, or are you on a, not on a first-name basis with her? We're certainly not. <laughs> <laughs> no. Uh, well, I never had that honor, but it was lovely when she did write to me. Uh, but to back up to when I first encountered the book... This was in the mid-1970s, uh, right around the time when the second wave of women's equality was just getting going. Um, and I was about Ged's age at the end of the book, that is 19. And it was somewhat frightening to a young Methodist in its treatment of death and uh, the Taoist underpinnings, although I can't say that I recognized them at the time. I just knew that it felt kind of different, particularly since it had been marketed as Tolkien-esque, and it was definitely not Tolkien-esque, but Tolkien was about the only name anybody really recognized in terms of fantasy literature around then. It was still kind of an up-and-coming genre. I also wondered, was this really a place for women? Um, this never troubled me in Tolkien, even though there are very few, even fewer women characters in Tolkien than there are in the Ursi series, but this was full of wicked women, and that amazingly wonderful expression Weak as women's magic, wicked as women's magic, kept coming back <laughs> oh, to uh, make me wonder. Yeah. However, the wonderful language and other aspects, which I'm sure we'll get into, kept me coming back. And I appreciated the absence of violence, the presence of silence, and the beauty of her writing. So, all of that's appropriate for a contemplative Methodist and a future Quaker. So, maybe that's <laughs> part of why I kept coming back. Fair enough. In 1993, I actually taught it for the first time uh -huh. in a women myth and fairy tale class. Tahanu had just come out in 1990, and it absolutely blew me away with its compassionate and insightful descriptions of gender and power, of different types of power, and of freedom. So I taught both the Tombs of Atuan, which we'll be getting to next month, and Tahanu as contrasting books because there's a very interesting piece of that which we'll come to when we're talking more about the books and their publication history. How was the how was that received as it how was it to teach it actually and how was it received at the at the time? Well, Tombs was kind of interesting to them because, you know, in a in a women's studies class, it didn't really seem to be very women's studies. And I had to explain to them, yeah, well, we just have to keep reading because <laughs> they couldn't really understand the full power of what she accomplished in Tahanu without having a familiarity with the tombs of Atuan. Mm -hmm. And because of the two characters, not not just the woman character, but she and Ged. I don't want to, again, get too far ahead in this. Right, yeah. We don't want to get into the plot details of that just yet. Right. But the um, it was a very useful tool for teaching 
the style is different somewhat, the focus is different. And I thought it was a really good way of demonstrating how 20 years worth of reflecting can bring new things to the surface. And just what an amazing person she was mm -hmm. to be willing to go back. Right. And to say, you know, how come I never asked myself before why all the wise guys are what are guys? Right? Yeah. So it was it was very exciting. And I wrote to her about this class right before I taught it the first time, and I got a letter back. And that amazing. was just astonishing to me. Um, <laughs> she also sent me a little pamphlet of Earthsea Revisioned, which answered a lot of the questions that I had about her conceptions of women in power and so forth. Um, so, after that, for about 20 years, 26 years, I taught it off and on, and um, it's just been a part of that background right. ever since. How many times do you think you've, you've read at least the, f the first three books? Oh, goodness. I think I figured that I taught it a total of seven times, so okay. probably a dozen times altogether. Okay. It's it's a little different from Tolkien in that I don't go back to it a lot. Uh-huh. But maybe now with this whole new series, I'll be certainly be going back to it more. <laughs> Indeed. And, uh, it's it's an odd thing. She just never really got the same press as Tolkien did. No. And I think there's some reasons for that, which again we'll probably get into as we dive into the series itself. But for those who did discover it um and love it. It's it's amazing how often when I'm mentioning it or, you know, in, in the chat or on the Facebook pages, and I say, well, I'm going to be doing this on Ursi's series, and I get people say, that is my favorite series, and I am so glad you're doing this because nobody knows about it. It's interesting. There's a, there is a, it's, she's, the series is like hiding in plain sight. Um, yes. There's, there's not a lot of, uh, 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 yeah. uh, awareness of it, I guess, is the word I'm looking for. She doesn't, she doesn't write to type. She doesn't write no. in the way one expects. And that is a great strength, as well as an occasional puzzlement, I think. I think there's a benefit there, though, too, because when you do find it and you go, oh, my goodness, like, how has this escaped me for all these years? This is the most right. incredible, amazing thing. And you feel like you found a treasure, not like you've been sort of force-fed the, the popular... You yes. know, mythology, you know, the soup du jour, you know, yes. at, at that time of day or that time of the. She was all about making things new and freedom mm -hmm. and wanting, always writing to the story, putting what is the story first and foremost, and not worrying about how is this going to be received. Again, we'll talk about that some more. So, John, when did you first encounter Earthsea? I first heard the word Earthsea. When you were a guest on our Rings of Power Lorecast, <laughs> and you brought up the concept of, you know, a different sort of way to, conceptual to conceptualize good and evil and sort of the balance of things. Right. And that piqued my interest. And so I, I purchased the book, and then I mentioned it to you when you came back to be on our Valaquenta podcast, I believe it was. And then we mm -hmm. all just start, sort of chatted for a while, and we came up with the idea for this podcast, and then that's really how I got introduced to it. I'm the new guy here, which is fun, because I'm usually the lore guy, and now I get to just sit back and just, you know, I get to coast. You guys get to do the heavy lifting. <laughs> I, just, I just hang out. I give my hot takes, and I go home. Right. You get yeah, to but, throw, throw little flaming brands of hot takes at us. and uh, I get to be wildly ignorant this time. Exactly. 
so yeah, I mean, I read it for the first time maybe a month ago, and then I, I listened to the audiobook again, because I, I read it on my Kindle the first time, you know, the, as the text, and then I, I listened to the audiobook again, and that was read by Robert Inglis, who does the Tolkien Lord of the Rings audiobooks, oh. which is kind of funny, because it, it, it almost reframed it for me, right? Because when I first read it, it felt very different from Tolkien. It felt very, uh, yeah. it, it almost felt lighter, but also at a blazing pace compared to Tolkien. <laughs> and then I listened to the Robert Inglis, and he kind of moderates it, right? He kind of makes it seem a little bit more gentrified, <laughs> if you will, <laughs> and sort of a little bit more in line with Tolkien's style. So it was a really interesting thing to sort of get it from different, two different perspectives. David, what do you know about this? I don't remember... When I first encountered Wizard of Earthsea, um, and in fact, I lived in Portland, Oregon, um, and I went uh. to middle school and high school. Well, a little bit of the end of grade school, middle school, high school, uh, and then on and off for a number of years. You know, I came and went a number of times uh, in my young adulthood. So she was a name that was around somewhere at some point. I do not remember the first time. I read it, but it's one of those books that I go, I have gone back to time and time again. And I think in many ways, it's one of the most impactful books. Uh, you know, it's one of the book series that's had the most impact on me in, in all of science fiction and, and fantasy and, and fiction in general. Um, I ad adore the first three books. Um, I don't know how many times I've I've read them. I still have my original copy that I purchased at some little uh you know used bookstore. It still says a dollar seventy-five written in pencil on the opening page. <laughs> and I remember I found, you know, I dug them out of the the boxes and you know I have it has that old bookshop smell in it still. And so I, I fell down a big nostalgia hole. And um yeah, I, I it's just and I, I think for the longest time, probably in the last 10 to 15 years, I've not read these and they haven't been on my mind. And then, yeah, as, as John, you mentioned, we were chit-chatting and uh, it came up and I was like, oh yeah, sure. Why not? What the heck? And then rereading them is really like, it's been a very moving experience for me from a nostalgia standpoint, as well as um, I just vibe with some of the stuff that she's laying down. But we'll talk about that here in a little bit. I can't wait to, in 30 years, smell my Kindle and be reminded of the time <laughs> that I first opened up this book. I, I'm not even going <laughs> to comment on that one. All right, so let's talk a little bit about coverage plans before we get into uh, some details on the publication history of uh, the series. Um, so we're not going to, so this is still the spoiler free section, but I wanted to at least provide a, syn a synopsis. Um, for anyone who's not yet read the book and is curious to, like, what is this book? And so this is the back cover of my 1980 edition, which is a 14th reprint. And it says, In his day, Ged, called Sparrowhawk, became both Dragonlord and Archmage. His story is told in many songs, but this is the haunting tale of a proud, lonely boy in the time before his fame. It is a tale of wizards, dragons, and shadows played out in Earthsea, a world of numberless islands and vast oceans where mages looking for adventure wander 
Working Magic. So that is the, uh, the first book. So we should talk a little bit about what our plans are. We are going to be covering all five books of the series. So the first original three trilogy were A Wizard of Ursi, The Tombs of Atuan, and The Furthest Shore. Then uh, Tehanu was written, and then a follow-up called The Other Wind was also uh, written and published. And um, so we're going to do those one podcast per book, except for Tehanu and The Other Wind, which we're, I th- we think we're going to combine. We're not sure yet. We still got to get into it. We'll see. No, Marilyn's shaking her head. No. <laughs> so we may be in for uh, five podcasts then. Depending, we might also cover Dragonfly and two other stories from the Tales of Earthsea. So as we get further into it, we're going to re- be looking at what's going to serve the, the story, you know, uh, discussion best. So if you want more of this, if you want us to take our time with this, you better start writing in, guys. You better start downloading this, <laughs> writing in, chatting on the Discord. It's all about the input, you know? It's all about the community. And I want to hear from all of you folks who have read the short story Dragonfly, because I think that is a significant link between Tehanu and The Other Wind. Well, this is going to be interesting because, uh, yeah, we've, like, I've only read, I think I've read Tehanu once a long time ago, but all the, the other three are, 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 you know, I've read many times, but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that I didn't even realize is written. So we're going to be discovering as we go. So that's exciting. So Marilyn, if people are interested in, you know, what we're doing, what can they do to prepare and participate, um, not participate, but to prepare and to, to listen along as we release these podcasts? Well, of course, if you're interested in reading along, please do so. You should know that we will be covering an entire book each episode, but that gives you a month between titles to catch up on the next book, so that that should be workable. The books are widely available, of course, uh, your friendly local newer used bookstore, public libraries, online retailer, you know their Jill, wherever you like to get your books. If you can afford a splurge, then I would suggest you look for the one-volume collection, The Books of Earthsea illustrated by Charles Vest. This was published in 2018, and it contains every single short story and novel that we will be referring to, including the essay Earthsea Revisioned, which can be very difficult to find. So if you really want to dig deep, um, then look for this collection. Though, as I say, it, it's, you know, it's not a buck 75, I can assure you. <laughs> it's not pulp. <laughs> no, definitely not pulp. Right. So, John, tell us, how are we going to cover this? So, in March, which is what you're listening to now, we're doing A Wizard of Earthsea. April, we're doing The Tombs of Atuan. May, we're doing The Farthest Shore. June, we're doing Tehanu. And July, we may be doing Dragonfly slash The Other Wind. Uh, You can contact us if you want to send in feedback at any point to uh, book at thelorehounds.com or... Head on to our Discord, or you can leave us a voicemail or a contact form entry at thelorehounds.com slash contact. As we said in the intro at the beginning, this is kind of repetitive information here, but we really do want your feedback and engagement on this. And so if you're 
hearing this podcast and then next month, April podcast, go ahead and send us in feedback for a wizard of Earthsea. And what we'll do is we'll incorporate that into our, our podcast coverage. So, you know, we'll kick back and, and talk a little bit about um, the past books because it can be hard to catch up. Or if you know, oh, you know, I've, I've read uh, The Furthest Shore and I've got some thoughts on that, you know, you can go ahead and send that in now. Uh, you don't have to wait and we'll collect and collate all that information. And we will also be adding in conversations about Ursula K. Le Guin herself, her impact on fantasy and literature and other topics as they arise. So yeah. it should be quite meaty discussions. Yeah, I think each podcast will kind of cover a, a different real world uh, topic. Um, and um, I think the first thing that we're going to talk about, which is our nice segue, is into talking a little bit about the publication history of the series as a whole. And, um, you know, some of the adaptations that have happened and um, just how she went around, how she might have, you know, how she went about uh, writing the series and uh, getting it published. Marilyn, you want to take us through a little bit of the publication history and some of the background into how uh, the Earthsea series uh, came about and uh, what are some, what are the, some of the things that, that inspired or helped shape um, shape the work as Ursula K. Le Guin was writing them. Yes, yeah, so it all started when her mother's publisher asked her to write a YA fantasy novel. Uh-huh. Um, her was mother, it called way, YA back then? Yes. It was, young adult. I don't know what it's called now. YA. <laughs> but, okay, good. Her mother published children's books, and was also a famous anthropologist along with her father. The Krobers were very well known. And this was also a part of Le Guin's background in her ability to create worlds. But she hated the idea of writing for any particular audience. And she'd also become rather discouraged because after one novel after another came crashing back through a transom of rejections. So he wasn't unsure about all this, but her mother's editor asked her to think about it. And so here's Ursula Le Guin herself on her own process. Quote, I thought about it. Slowly the idea sank in. Would writing for older kids be so different from just writing? Why? Despite what some adults seem to think, teenagers are fully human. And some of them read as intensely and keenly as if their life depended on it. Sometimes maybe it does. And fantasy, pure old-fashioned fantasy, not mixed with science fiction. I liked that idea. All my life, I'd been reading about wizards, dragons, magic spells. Back then, in 1967, wizards were all, more or less, Merlin and Gandalf. Old men, peaked hats, white beards. <laughs> but this was to be a book for young people. Well, Merlin and Gandalf must have been young once, right? And when they were young, when they were fool kids, how did they learn to be wizards? And there was my book. Was so, Gandalf ever young? I'm going to take issue with that. Well, I guess it depends on how many years of the trees he spent being a lord. Right. And Fine. <laughs> um, so the first book was uh, published in 68, which um, I am not a, a scholar of the science fiction and fantasy, uh, you know, publication literature history, but um, there's certainly plenty of stuff being written and slung around then. I mean, we had all kinds of 
um, pulp uh, stories and um, comic book things. But it still strikes me that 68 is like a, I mean, that, that goes back a little ways in terms of publication history in this, in this genre. Yeah, the science fiction was having a moment, or a decade, or whatever, mm -hmm. and Le Guin had started off in that medium, and there was some very strict demarcation if you did science fiction, you were not to do fantasy, and vice versa, for reasons that we can discuss if you like. Mm -hmm. um, so that was part of her hesitation. Really, the only fantasy literature that was well-known at the time was uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. That had been out for over a decade. And his influences were largely from the 19th century fantastic literature, which, of course, nobody knew at that point. There was also T.H. White, who had written uh, The Sword in the Stone, which was a, a Arthurian literature, and some people say that White is their favorite Arthurian author. But other than that, most speculative fiction at this point was actually science fiction. Okay. So there weren't a lot of models, and Tolkien was, you know, the massive model on the horizon that everybody knew about, which is why I think a lot of people, when they first pick up Earthsea, are kind of surprised, because they're led to expect that, oh, yeah, well, this is kind of like Tolkien, and, you know, it really isn't. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, because the coming out of the 60s, you know, and coming out of World War II, and the end of World War II, and the atomic age, right? So science and technology were very ascendant uh, themes and ideas, Buck Rogers and, you know, um, uh, the space race and all of those things. Yeah, I could see how that, that would be um, ample fodder for, or ample fuel for uh, the science fiction genre overall. But yeah, really, yeah, where is fantasy prior to that? And like you said, you know, Arthurian and Tolkien. And but she never really liked the idea of genre fiction. She okay. wrote stories, and she right. wrote whatever the story needed and demanded. And she wanted to speculate. She wanted the freedom to explore, to ask what-if kinds of questions. And so science fiction was a great way to do that. Mm -hmm. At the same time, she had this very strong grounding uh, through her own reading in European folklore, uh, you know, the usual kinds of stories, coming-of-age stories, school stories. And to be writing in, in the medium of, of fantasy was also very comfortable for her. And a lot of people maintain that, that she kind of melds the two um, because she brings in non-material things to the scientific world, which for some sci-fi lovers was really anathema. Right. And then so the Star Wars happened, and then everything <laughs> went out the window. All bets were off. I'm surprised you're reading this book, too, John, because you're such a Star Wars hound these days. Well, I, I do take time off from now and then. You know, <laughs> That's I, good. I don't want to be a full-time Jedi. I do have attachments elsewhere. That's right. So, let's see, A Wizard of Earthsea was uh, published in 68. Tombs of Atuan was in 70. The Furthest Shore in 72. And then we have a big gap from 72 to 1990 for Tehanu. And then Tales of the Ursi and the Other Wind both come out in 2001. So another big gap. So big leaps in between the tale of the series and the beginning. And I, I had a question when I was reading this, because in, and not to include any spoilers, but in A Wizard of Ursi, there at least is 
one explicit reference to the second book, and she certainly sets up some groundwork for the third book. And so what do we know in her writing process? Did she have it sort of mapped out? Did she know it was going to be these three books? Or did she um, did she let the story lead her, and then these story, you know, the far the the second two books then came out as a result of what she discovered in the first? Do we know anything about that process? I haven't I haven't necessarily discovered anything myself. There may be some stuff out there that outlines that, but mm-hmm. as you say, I'm pretty sure that she had a trilogy in mind when she first started because heck, you know. Ever since Tolkien, right. we thought she had to write a trilogy, <laughs> even though Tolkien was forced to write it as a trilogy because of a paper shortage immediately following the Second World War. So, as far as he was concerned, Lord of the Rings was not a trilogy, it was a single volume. But that didn't stop, you know, the rest of the world from thinking, okay, fantasy equals trilogy, or more. And um, it's still that way, right? I mean, I feel like we still have not broken out of that we you know there are longer series but even those longer series seem to be broken down into sub divisions <laughs> of trilogies right you look at the expansive i know that's science fiction but yeah. that's that's three trilogies you look at mm-hmm. the wheel of time it does branch out from trilogies eventually but at first it's like two trilogies <laughs> that start so it's yeah it's funny how that really became a thing and it's still a thing yeah, and a very recent series, which I absolutely love, called Wings of Fire, again, I think would classify as young adult. It's a three series of five books each. Hmm. And then she's branched off into some historical ones. And uh, Interesting. If, if, you love, if you like dragons, I cannot recommend this one highly enough. Um, Tui Sutherland is the name of the author, so those of you listening, uh, look for the Wings of Fire. You probably already know all about it, because it's really been hitting the scene lately. So I just did a, a quick um, Google search, and because one of the things that is really remarkable about these books is the brevity of them. Not in the brevity of ideas or the um, beautiful construction of, of language that she uh, is able to, to her, her natural gift with words and, and writing is, is incredible. And then you realize that A Wizard of Ursi is only 56,000 words, which is tiny. When you consider that A Game of Thrones is 298,000 words, <laughs> and uh, it only goes up from there, you know, it, it hovers around 300 to 400,000 for subsequent books. So the stories that she's writing in these are so compressed and so condensed in this just exquisite language that she uses. I, I have no, like, it, it, I don't know what her publisher thought. They were like, wait, this is it, <laughs> right? This thing's, you know, my copy with all the fluff in the beginning and the end is 183 pages. You know, it's yeah. tiny. You know, it's funny. I was thinking as I read it, because I, I've read a lot of other fantasy, but I haven't read this before. I said to myself, she accomplishes the same character beats in one book about 80% of the same character beats in one book that The Wheel of Time does in about 12 books. <laughs> wow. And what's really fascinating to me, and I just realized this, there's very little dialogue in this first book. Yeah. It's a very inner, inwardly turned book because it's, it's about a, a specific character and his process, his coming of age, if you will. 
again, YA books, I think people thought, well, we can't make them too long because we don't want to overburden our young readers, which of course is silly, but there you are. That's what they believed back then. Yeah. I think that's turned around. You look at the Sarah J. Moss books that come out that are super popular with young adults. Yeah. Very, very long now. They are hundreds of pages, which, you know, fine. People will like them. But you're absolutely right, David. Her use of language is exquisite. And it's kind of funny to reflect on how important silence is in these books. I mean, if mm. you look at the, the major mentor figure, um, you know, he's Ogian the Silent. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, and the use of language, words, words have power, names have power. So, you don't use a lot of language unless you have something specific that you want to accomplish. Right. right. And I think we've, we've got some choice quotes uh, that we're going to be uh, throwing out once we get into the spoiler, uh, you know, the more detailed conversation. So, uh, I can't wait to, yes. to drop it. Guys, I'm ready well, for the meat. Let's get through this publication. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and one of my favorite lines of all is, to hear, one must listen. Very simple. <laughs> it's a very simple concept. Mm. So and it's repeated twice. Right. <laughs> we are not good at listening. Um, so we should really touch briefly on um, the writing and publication of Tehanu, which is such a, a jump between the third book and Tehanu. So that was uh, 72 to 1990. And she wrote Tehanu under, with a whole different mindset and ethos. She had come to some different understandings. What do we know about that process and that jump uh, between the publication dates there? Well, the fact that uh, the second wave of women's movement had, had, was underway yeah. in the 70s. And Le Guin was always at the forefront of, of good changes. Um, and the more she thought about it, the more she began looking at her Earthsea and uncovering some of the things that I mentioned before about what made me question, well, are women welcome here or not? And so she decided she really had to go back to Earthsea and figure out what were the women doing all this time? Why was women's magic weak and wicked? Why were all the wise guys guys, as I said before? Um, why couldn't a man look a dragon in the eye? Just this whole series of questions started to come out. And the more she explored, the more she began to uncover ideas of power and gender, and how power is gendered, and how that affects relations between men and women. But even more richly, to my mind, she began to explore the nature of power itself. What does it mean to be powerful? And she found herself, she says, I had to stop riding the powerful dragon of my tradition. Get off this winged creature that could carry you far and walk on my own two feet. Wow. To really uncover, to revision the tradition that I had inherited. Right. Lovingly, but honestly. And found herself going deeper and deeper into a different view of power and what that means to the point where she wound up not really knowing what the next step was. Mm -hmm. It's interesting because I remember um, 
being a uh, young man in in Seattle in the you know early '90s and taking classes at, at community college and stuff, and I was like, oh, you know, uh, I heard that you know there's a new Ursi book. Oh, I can't wait! I want to find out what's going on with Ged and Ursi and all this stuff. And then I read Dehanu. And I had no idea what I was reading. I was like, what is this? I bounced <laughs> so hard off of it. But that's interesting because at that point in my life and, and what, I had at, what I had inherited, I wasn't yet ready to confront or understand or to, uh, you know, to think in a different way about gender and power and, and the dynamics. I was only just sort of coming, into my, coming out of my childhood and into my early adulthood. And um, this was this sort of new thing. So I'm really excited to Get, take another look at Tehanu mm-hmm. and, and understand it now as a person who's walked a few steps and encountered a few mm-hmm. other people's stories. So, um, Well, also consider that Tehanu reflects 20 years worth of development as a writer. True. Right. And 20 years of increasingly active calling out of, think of all the things that were going on in, in the 70s and 80s and, and early 90s. So... She had two decades worth of growth on her, too. Which is great that an author is not just going, oh, I got a shtick. I got a thing. I can just, you know, crank out a few pages and I'll, you know, turn the money handle. Um, but she, is a, as a person with integrity and authenticity, is reflecting in her, on her own ideas and values and is then reapplying that to her craft and her art. Yes. So there are two... To, to go from, to jump from the end back to the very beginning, I wanted to reference these specifically. There are two short stories that she wrote in 64 before she knew what she was going, that, that these stories were going to uh, turn into Earthsea. And uh, that's The Word of Unbinding and The Rule of Names. And I think you can find those in that single volume issue uh, that you talked about, Marilyn, where, you know, everything's contained. I picked it up in a collection of short stories. I picked those two up in a collection of short stories called The, the Wind's 12, 12 Quarters. Um, and it was really cool to read those because you can see these proto-ideas that she's working out. One of them even is very, has a little Tolkien quality to it, the second one, <laughs> a rule of names. But you can see her laying down the tracks and, and building this world and constructing this magic system. Uh, in these two short stories. And so I would encourage anyone uh, who is reading along with us to, if you can, go check those two short stories out because uh, after, maybe after, or any, any point along, it doesn't matter, but they're, they're fun things to see where the seeds are being planted and then how they've grown you know, through the subsequent stories. Definitely. Um, anything you want to mention quickly about Dragonfly or the Other Wind at this stage? Because we referenced them before. Just that they are, Dragonfly serves as a bridge between Tahanu and the Other Wind. Okay. And the Other Wind manages to answer the questions that she herself could not answer at the end of Tahanu. Okay. She had no idea what doors she had opened and what, what she had started. Interesting. Um, and it took another decade until she finally got that all sorted. Was able to get around to that. Yeah, I, I have no experience with the other wind, so it'll be. I'm really excited to to uh, read those. Last quick notes: there are two screen adaptations that were made of these. I have seen none of them. I, has anybody seen either of these things? Marilyn, no. John, no. 
Um, so no, no, yes. You've seen it. I, I suffered my way through the TV adaptation. <laughs> okay, got it, right. So I guess um, you loved it. <laughs> well, for those of you who are on the Discord, I already posted a link of Le Guin's own comments on the series, and uh, I'll just leave you with that. Um, well, she, yeah, she, she is um, on record as having disowned the, the TV adaptation, which was a 2004 two-part TV miniseries that combined the first and second novels, and it's called Legend of Earthsea, and then later they just shortened it to Earthsea. And um, it sounds horrible. Uh, I really, I, I'm, I, it, part of me wants to check them out because I, you know, just tr- try to create some it's wholeness a trap. and completeness. It is. <laughs> it's a trap. Um, but like, and there's some big names in there, like Danny Glover's in there. And I mean, it's just because mm-hmm, you're in a big mm-hmm, name doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you're, you're, the production is any good, but it sounds um, pretty horrible. And I think one of the most important things that, that was a deviation is that she purposely wrote the characters in Earthsea to be of dark skin mm-hmm. and in varying shades. And in the movie, it was uh, everybody was um, not dark skinned. <laughs> the main protagonist certainly wasn't. He was a. Yeah. Yeah. With one exception, the, yeah, all light skinned. And, and I think what was even worse in her eyes, he was put forward as a, as a spoiled rich kid of privilege. Yeah. Okay. Which is not um, completely yeah. unfamiliar. Yeah. All right. well, one thing I will point out, though, is that the fact that in 2004 somebody thought it was worth their while to make a TV miniseries means that Le Guin's name had been put out there by then. Right. And that Earthsea was a known thing. There's a there's enough of a ground. Yeah. Enough people have encountered in Reddit that there is a mm-hmm. uh, market that you could put forward to. You could put that uh, property out to. In 2006, uh, Studio Ghibli. Uh, did a film adaptation of Tales of Earthsea in in according to Wikipedia the the Japanese translation is Ged's War Chronicles so <laughs> uh, a little bit wow. yeah and um, Ursula K Le Guin is quoted as saying it's not my book it's your movie it's a good movie but you know reiterating the fact that the um, combining they took all four books combined them into one and Miyazaki's son was the one who did the adaptation. So that was another thing that I think she was disappointed with because she thought Miyazaki himself was going to be the, uh, uh, the, the chief creative source for this. Cause studio Ghibli is excellent. I mean, they are great. Yeah. A animation Absolutely. studio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But they were not paying attention to the actual text. If it was called Gez War Chronicles, let me read two quick quotes from Le Guin about Earthsea. Yeah. Quote, a hero whose heroism consists of killing people is uninteresting to me, and I detest I detest the hormonal war orgies of our visual media. Close quote. So <laughs> wow. with apologies with apologies to Star Wars. I bet she would have been a big fan of Game of Thrones. Ooh, oh, I, um, and the other quote. War as a moral metaphor is limited, limiting, and dangerous. By reducing the choices of action to, quote, a war against, close quote, whatever it is, you divide the world into me or us, good, and them or it, bad, and reduce the ethical complexity and moral richness of our life to yes, no, on, off. This is puerile, misleading, and degrading, close quote. So no, I can see why she wouldn't have liked Ged's War Chronicles. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. And in, in a lot of ways, she was 
um, directly subverting uh, all these war tropes, right? And these young coming Absolutely. of age. Absolutely. Yeah. And even in in uh, confronting dualism, right? Yes. Yes. In, in a way, uh, which we'll get into when we get into the the detail thing. The last note on the adaptation stuff. Uh, as I was doing some internet reading, um, I did see some news from 2019, and obviously that's dated. So I believe that her son is quoted in one of the articles that I read that he was happy and excited that uh, A24 had rights, and then that there was some even indication that she had given her blessing to having this treatment and adaptation work done uh, prior to her passing. So, um, but I haven't heard anything new, and so if anybody knows, would be interested to hear because. Um, it would be a, a pretty major thing if they're able to translate this into any kind of screen adaptation. Okay, so let's take a quick break before we get into our spoiler-filled, detailed conversation. We'll be right back. All right, and we're back. And before we get into the detailed conversation, um, we're going to talk a little bit about our personal takes on reading the story. And then we're going to get into a detailed section. We've broken up the book into multiple sections. John's going to lead us through that. And then we're going to sort of analyze the book as we go along to these uh, major parts of the book. All right, so let's um, talk about our, our personal takes. John, since you're newest to the, uh, this book, why don't you lead us off? And what are your general thoughts about reading A Wizard of Mercy? Wow, it's like when you let the youngest sibling play first on the board game. Basically. So I was kind of jarred by the style at first, to be honest with you, because it was so pithy and it was so fast-paced yet dense. It was, it was a strange combination, right? Because when I first opened it, all of a sudden they're throwing proper nouns at me they're throwing, you know, a million different locations and names of things. And that made me go, oh, what's going on here? Uh, and then immediately it throws you right in. And, and Ged is already, or I guess Dooney at the time, is just going right for it, being a wizard and, and coming right under his aunt's wing. And it, it was just like a shocking pace. And once I got used to that, once I calibrated myself, then I was able to settle in a little bit. And I think something that I don't remember which one of you said this, but I think one of you said it's like listening to a story around the campfire. That's the style of this book, rather than, rather than something where it's, uh, you know, Bilbo Baggins and Frodo Baggins recording this grand tale from their perspective. This is really a, a legend. This is a myth mm. more than it is a retelling. And so that made me like it a lot more. And... By the end, I was just really impressed by, I mean, I think the ending made me like it about 20 times more than I would have if we hadn't got to that point, because it, at times I was like, I'm not really sure where this is going. And then by the time we get to the end, I go, oh, that's a nice place to leave it. And I think that's a nice lesson to impart and a nice way to set up this guy for more adventures. So mm -hmm. I'm excited to see where the series goes after this, because I did feel like I was in one long prequel for a time. and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I think that it's going to be a, a hell of a ride going forward. What, I'm curious, John, I, I remember you said something at one point while you were reading it uh, about how um, it doesn't f 
feel necessarily original or that you had some sort of reference to the fact that you've read a lot of fantasy, mm-hmm. but you hadn't read this, but this is actually coming before a lot of fantasy. Right. I mean, this is Hogwarts before Hogwarts, right? This is a, a, a wizard school, you know, long before right. that was a, a, a thing, you know, I- in literature. I swear, if Robert Jordan didn't read Earthsea, I will be shocked because <laughs> there are so many echoes of, inner, of Earthsea in the Wheel of Time. Mm-hmm. It's incredible. He must have read this, or at least he pulled from the same influences because he was also into pulling from Eastern influences. And that could be part of it too. But it it's like you said, it's. Because I've read so much fantasy and a lot of these, now we can talk about spoilers, a lot of this idea of finding balance between sort of the light and dark side in yourself. That is a theme that has now been promulgated through fantasy. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that was the case at the time, but it is much more common now, so it did not feel fresh to me. But I think that it was executed well, and I think that if she hadn't written it, I don't think that it would have reached the widespread, you know, infiltration into the genre that it has. <laughs> and you're a big Wheel of Time fan. Like you enjoy oh, I love the Wheel of Time. One yeah. day I'm going to convince you guys to cover the Wheel of Time on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see. How Only many 14 books, books 16, to go? 14 books, that's what it is. Yeah, goodness And me. a prequel if you want to do that. We could do that. Right. I'm down. Um, and did you... Um, I'm just curious as to your your takeaway in the brevity of it like you said you were disoriented uh, right. early on and right. it, because it does it is so efficient and elegant the wheel of time is four million four hundred ten thousand <laughs> words crikey moses and it does essentially the same character arc as ged has in this book for the main character wow <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of shocking when you think about it like that. Now, the Wheel of Time is a very rich world, and and there is something to be said for taking your time and like noticing all the details and having Easter eggs and doing varied characters, right, and having different points of view. I think there's something to be said for that style. It's very different, though. And this was a very, you know, cut out all the bullshit, really, she says. And I'm going to give you the story. I'm going to give you the meat of the story that we want to talk about here. Which I think is a reflection of the culture that she, she is describing. Right. In a way. I mean, this, this is a fairly stripped down, no frills culture. At least those are the people that we see. There are plenty of rich people in palaces and so forth, and she's not a fan of that sort of thing too much. Right. But I, I like your characterization of it as, um, you know, a narrative being told by the fire. Yeah. It's, it's, it's more a saga than, you know a jest or a lay or, you know, something. Plus, it, her her skill with words even then was such that she was not going to put in any more words than she needed to use. And I think that's just a, a writing style difference. You know, I love the Expanse books for science fiction, but I also love Kurt Vonnegut, right? And Kurt Vonnegut will write a 200-page book that will be profoundly deep, yet be just very few words. Like, he he will tell the story so quickly. In fact, he'll spoil the story at the beginning for you. He'll say, this is the story, now let's go back and and figure it out. Well, that's basically what she does too, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It is. You know, he's going to be a great wizard, now let's back up. 
and look at what he was before he became a great wizard. Right. And again, that's that's the coming of age. That's the sort of YA flavor that had been originally asked for. Um, and, you know, if, if what she was holding in her mind was, you know, what were Gandalf and Merlin like when they were young, then that's what she was going to do. Right. Marilyn, uh, what's your um, hot take on the reading of A Wizard of Earthsea? Well, I think I'd have to take my hot take and put it back in the oven because we're talking <laughs> the 1970s, which was quite a while ago. Um, I mentioned this a little bit at the very beginning. Um, it took me a while to get into it. It was so much darker than things I was accustomed to. It had a happy ending, so in that sense, it met Tolkien's qualifications as a quote-unquote fairy story. It was clearly not a fairy story, although it was fantasy, if you see the difference here. But it's the kind of thing that seems simple on the surface, but every time I go back to it, there's something new. Mm -hmm. And so, it's a reflection of that, that gift for words that she has. And I have to set aside some of my objections. You know, if you think of every single woman in this series, all of them are bad. Yeah. So, oh, in the whole Fitch series, is, except that's for right. In, in in this first oh, okay. book, in this I was going to say, does this, does this for, keep going? <clears throat> no, 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 no. Except for Yarrow. Yeah. But you know, even even she is is a you know D yeah. an obedient caregiver housewife. Right. You know, um, but we've got witches, and we've got witches' children, and we've got you know just it. Yeah. So Ogian even cautions him and Ogian's supposed to be the wise one right he's supposed to be the patient one that we can trust right he's he goes well <laughs> she is the enchantress, enchantress's daughter she's half a witch herself right all, all of a sudden you know the minute that she's a woman associated with magic watch out well that's the ancient equation of woman plus power equals evil mm. but it's also an Arthurian reflection because you have the young Arthur, who was seduced, you know, according to some stories, by his half sister, and all of the all of the seductress women in Arthur's stories were some kind of witches or or evil beings. So hmm. she's riding the tradition; she's following along with the the standard points that she was given. That she inherited, and it's that she inherited exactly. Um, in terms of um, fantasy literature what does this work do for you marilyn outside of the gender issues which she tried to rectify later at least just this first book if we just sort of set gender issues aside for a moment mm -hmm. the story itself of of not only of coming of age but becoming whole i love what she does with dragons okay <laughs> i really enjoyed and this is part of becoming whole yeah. Because part of his journey is to confront a dragon, and he becomes a dragon lord, and that's a big deal. Huge, yeah. Yeah, but they're different. They're not St. George's dragons. They're not the Western European style. They're very influenced by uh, Asian cultures. Um, I think of the Maori uh, Tenefra dragons. Dragons are practically universal, but different cultures interpret them differently. And she has also interpreted them differently. Now, they're more traditional in the, f in the first books, but again, as the series goes on, you see more and more uh, openings up for them. So that, that was very cool in terms of fantasy. I loved her system of magic. Yeah. 
that it rests in language and it requires balance. Right. You know, those two things together are just so wonderful. And actually seeing it being enacted and how she describes it, you know, when, he, when he's on Gaunt and decided that he's got to chase his shadow and he's making his own sail with magic. And she says, when he weaves the sail out of magic, the Gauntish women watching him on shore sighed. You know, and in that, that, just that one sentence, you've got this whole view of, yes, weaving a sail, if you're not a magician, takes a long time and is a real piece of work. And here he is doing all these things. Uh, so, those are, those are some of the other things that kind of jump out at me. David, you haven't given us your hot take yet. No, uh, I haven't. Um, as I said up at the top of the episode, this one, this is one of the series of books that I've gone back to uh, over and over again, and um, it really speaks to uh, some things that are, you know, what what are in our own personal psychology the things that we gravitate towards or or resonate with us or 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 we're drawn to, and and this idea of of dualism that she deals with and wholeness, and, which is sort of rooted, rooted in a Taoist tradition. Uh, Taoism was of, of great interest to me as a, as a young man trying to like manage myself uh, through, through life uh, and all of the circumstances that I had. So I think it even spoke to me before I even knew what Taoism was. Uh, and then that was something that um, later on in my life, I was at least attenuated to be able to read and hear and sort of, you know, dabble at the edges of. Um, I think in this most recent reading, I've just blown away by her uh, elegance and efficiency in writing. Um, and I think, as you said something earlier, Marilyn, that um, as you come back to it, it it's static. It's not changing. It's it's ever it's it's as she wrote it at the time, and as each time I come to it. I pick up on a different detail. I, different parts of it are more meaningful to me in different ways, and that is a measure of my own growth and journey as a human being through through my life. That you know, when I was younger, I was like, oh, you know, learning how to be a, a wizard and sail and defeat a dragon. And now it's like, oh, what is this old power thing? And like, what's going on with uh, Yarrow and and Vetch and being able to see his old friend? Like, those were more important to me in, in this reading. Um, so I really love that this piece of work that she wrote in 68 or published in 68 can do that to me, like, or I can react to this thing that she's written so long ago. And each time I come to it, I find something more beautiful or more interesting or more fascinating, more personally illuminating, um, more things to reflect on in, what did we say it was? 50 some odd thousand words? <laughs> that so so not only does the story itself resonate for me but the idea the intellectual concept that this very simple not even 200 page book can uh have that kind of impact on me i also enjoy that as much as i enjoy the story well i think you're absolutely right one of the best signs of a really good book is that you can come back to it again and again and find new things each time it's hard to believe that this book was written that long ago. There's, there's nothing dated about it. Nothing. 
And I also really resonate with what you said about um, the Tao and the approach to one's own mm-hmm. flaws, darkness, whatever you want to call it. It I had already begun to sort of intuit in my own mind dimly that, you know, trying to defeat one's flaws was not an answer. Right. And so, I think that was one of the things that spoke to me very early on is, no, you don't defeat it. You recognize it, you name it, you own it. And it is a part of you. And you don't waste your energy trying to defeat it. Right. Because you won't. Right. It's like one of those finger puzzle traps. You have to go, it's it's (laughs) counterintuitive. You have to go in to get out as opposed to pulling away and and causing resistance and trapping yourself further. And what a wonderful coming of age message. Yeah. Because, you know, as you're, when, when one is young and you're struggling with these things, you're, your brain is swirling full of hormones and chemicals and, and uh, um, your brain is yet to develop and you're, you're trying to connect yourself to yourself and understand who you are and where you are in the world. And to have such a beautifully written story that is so elegantly told that to hear it you know, you're like, well, you know, a, a, you know, intellectual truth should be, you know, big and weighty and hundreds of pages. It's like, nah, nah, man, it's, it's right here. And in 200 pages <laughs> mm-hmm. or less, you can find mm-hmm. a stillness and a peace that can carry with you your entire journey. And our culture is so full of stories and messages and tropes about conquering. Yeah. Overcoming. Defeating. Right. And that's not how this is resolved. And it's not realistic. You don't all, you know. Exactly. It's not, and I think that goes back to the quote that you read earlier about the overuse of of conflict, um, is that that's not the reality of things. I don't defeat my sibling in, in a, (laughs) you know, a multi-year long struggle over something that we're arguing about in our family. Right, we we resolve, we we heal, we come apart, we come back together again, whatever. But I don't. I don't know. Defeat. You haven't met my family. <laughs> well, that has an impact, then, doesn't it? <laughs> right. When we use that metaf- that kind of metaphor and that kind of language to to set up uh, our relationships. Exactly. I kid if you're listening from my family. <laughs> <laughs> it's the language that we choose that determines our metaphors yeah. and our approach. And, and then shapes our thoughts so well. and shapes our actions. Right. Uh, right. And, I and think our understanding this, of the world. And then the, in this book, she's in 68, she's dealing with whatever she's inherited in terms of cultural tropes and, and these norms and values. But at the same time, she's so actively subverting all of that. In the middle of the Vietnam War. Yes. Gee, I wonder if there's a connection. Mm. <laughs> well, let's get to this plot. I think it's time, guys. That sounds good. You I want agree. to take y'all. Let's y'all. say y'all. I used to live in the South. All right. All right. A young boy named Dooney discovers that he's naturally talented with magic. And after a time training with his aunt, who is a witch, he's sent to live with the wizard of his island named Ogion. And after a time with Ogion, gets sent to the wizard school on Roke Island. What do we all think about this? Marilyn, you want to go first? I'd love to, because I have two very apt quotes, I think, that will sum up pretty nicely this whole effect. Though a very silent man, he, being Ogion, was so mild and calm that Ged soon lost his awe of him. 
and in a day or two more he was bold enough to ask his master, When will my apprenticeship begin, sir? It has begun, said Ogian. There was a silence, as if Ged was keeping back something he had to say. Then he said it. But I haven't learned anything yet. Because you haven't found out what I am teaching, replied the mage. Very Mr. Miyagi. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and then the um, climax of his time with Ogian, he is led to read from a certain book, which is way beyond his power and capacity, about summoning. And as he reads it, the room gets dark, and he's cold. Looking over his shadow shoulder, looking over his shoulder, he saw that something was crouching beside the closed door, a shapeless clot of shadow darker than darkness. It seemed to reach out towards him and to whisper, and to call to him in a whisper, but he could not understand the words. The door was flung wide. A man entered with a white light flaming about him, a great bright figure who spoke aloud, fiercely and suddenly. The darkness and the whispering ceased and were dispelled. The horror went out of Ged, but he was still mortally afraid, for it was Ogian the mage who stood there in the doorway with a brightness. Ged, listen to me now. Have you never thought how danger must surround power as shadow does light? This sorcery is not a game we play for pleasure or for praise. Think of this, that every word, every act of our art is said and is done either for good or for evil. Before you speak or do, you must know the price that is to pay. Driven by his shame, Ged cried, How am I to know these things when you teach me nothing? Since I lived with you, I have done nothing, seen nothing. Now you have seen something said the mage, <laughs> by the door, in the darkness, when I came in. Ogion is quiet when he needs to be, but boy, does he have some zingers right up his sleeve <laughs> the whole time. So here's, here's a question I have off the bat. Is this shadow the same shadow that we see later? Or is it, you think it's different, Marilyn? You're shaking your head. We're on a podcast, Marilyn. You got to voice these things. <laughs> I don't like to over, you know, <laughs> jump over. No, it, it's later on in the book. It is said that that was merely a vision of okay. the shadow that eventually he calls forth. Okay. Okay. Thanks for clarifying that. That's interesting because, you know, at the end, I, I think it's fair to frame things in what we learn at the end. It said, you know, because he's one with himself he can no longer be possessed by something else, right? He's, he's exactly. now unable to be infiltrated. Uh, so I, what I was wondering at that point when I was rereading this was, is this something that was sort of trying to get in then, or was this a split that he was starting to have? So yeah, I'm glad you clarified that. Well, the implication is it was the, uh, um, the young seductress's mother who was encouraging her to encourage Ged to read this text, which was way beyond his capacities. Oh, these women of Earthsea. I'm telling you. <laughs> it's, and it's good narrative um, uh, uh, storytelling device here, uh, premonition, foreshadowing, uh, priming us for what's going to come later. So it, 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 in, a, in a way, it works as a device uh, uh, very much to, to let us know. I think, too, like just in these two short chapters, 
she establishes um the the magical system in this world very nicely. I mean, we learn more later about it when he gets to Roke, but understanding uh, of names of that that names have power that um that you can call upon these forces in, uh, in the world uh, just so expertly uh, brings all of that to life, I think is just a, a really great way. We get right to the, the, the heart of, not the heart of the matter, but we just, she takes us right into this world and starts building it. I love that Ogian is basically the opposite of Ged, right? Ged is headstrong, wants to get mm. to the, the advanced level. He wants to start a calculus without knowing to add and subtract. <laughs> And Ogian is just so patient. He's so patient that he says, do you want to go off and do your own thing? And basically in his head, I think he's going, and then you'll come back to me when you're ready. I'll be patient <laughs> and wait for you. I'll demonstrate patience by not forcing you to be here. This is the man who stilled the earthquake. Mm, interesting. And, you know, I think that we also see sort of the darkness in Ged from the beginning. I mean, even when his aunt puts that spell on him and says, you know, you can't tell anybody what I'm telling you. Ged says, good, I don't want to. He's, he's for hoarding the power, right? He's, he's already starting to act in a sort of selfish way from the beginning. He shows his immaturity right away. And I think that, you know, there's a Clone Wars episode. I'm going to bring in Star Wars. There's a Clone Wars episode <laughs> where, where Yoda, to get the ability to become a Force ghost, has to learn how to accept that he is prideful, right? He has to accept that there's a little bit of darkness uh, in him. And only then can he master it when he acknowledges that it exists. And I think that that's what happens with Ged throughout this book. I think that's where mm -hmm. we end up. Mm -hmm. Only in silence the word, only in dark the light, mm. only, in, only in dying life, bright the hawk's flight on the empty sky. Wow. That's how she starts the whole series. She tells you where she's going right away. And it's very similar to the Tao that can be told is not the eternal Tao. The name that can be named is not the eternal name. The nameless is the beginning of heaven and earth. The named is the mother of ten thousand things. Ever desire less, one can see the mystery. Ever desiring, one can see the manifestations. These two spring from the same source, but differ in name. This appears as darkness. Darkness within darkness. The gate to all mystery. That's the first of the different sections of the, the Tao. Mm. Written by Lao Tzu. Very similar. Yeah. Exactly. We said before that she is a Taoist and uh, never forgets it. So I think that's a lot of where that first poem came from. Right. David, we haven't heard from you much on this section. Yeah, it's, um, uh, I, I resonate more with uh, later sections, at least in, in this time of, of my time of reading. Uh, although the one part that does really move me here, um, there's two things. One, the, the naming ceremony mm. um, and this idea of, of true names that uh that are this source of power and 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 whatnot um but there is this uh part here where 
once Ged is given the choice to leave or to stay, how that choice clarifies to him how he feels mm. about Ogyan. Mm-hmm. He's been frustrated with him. Master, you're not teaching me nothing. When am I going to start? This is crazy. You just walk around. and I'm just waxing floors and cleaning your car and painting exactly. fences. And it I is just so... It and is then so he, but, but see, Ogion, <laughs> this was his fatal flaw. This is why I didn't stay. He never said, okay, now wax on. And then, you know, karate chop him and make him test it. You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't let him yeah. see the application there. Right. So when he's confronted then with the choice of leaving or staying, that resolves his love for his master. And Ogion is who gave him his true name, right? Ogion, I think, uh, yes. knows him better than yeah. anyone else. He sees right to his soul immediately. Yes. And I think that that really helps Ogion help him later on when he finally goes to him mm-hmm. for help, when he finally humbles himself to go back yeah. to his master, who he spurned, mm-hmm. and say, Master, please help me. Well, and as you remember, moving along to the next section here, uh, when he goes to Roke, the letter that Ogien wrote basically says this is the most powerful, potentially med- mage that we'll ever see. Yes. <laughs> so, you're right, John. Yeah. He sees. He definitely sees yeah. who and what Ged is. Well, and I love this. I, I, in all the readings, I never connected the, 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 the guy who stilled the earthquake is the guy who stilled this powerful wizard and taught him silence. That's why he's called Ogi and the Silent. Stilling is what you call the process of cutting off the magical people from the magic powers in the Wheel of Time, and so that just scared me huh. for a second. Anyway. Interesting. <laughs> anyway. Let's move on to the next section. So Ged heads to Roke. And he quickly becomes very powerful, but he's a bit thin-skinned. He meets a guy named Jasper, and they go through a bit of a mean girl's phase. He participates in a duel with Jasper, which releases a shadow with no name as a result of a botched summoning spell. The Archmage of the school has to step in and sacrifices his life to save Ged. Ged then spends several months recovering and is protected by the magical charms on the island while he continues his studies. David, why don't you go first this time? Um, I think, to me, I thought one of the coolest things was that to enter this school, you have to be willing <laughs> to give up the one thing you have, which is your name, and you have to speak it truly and authentically. Otherwise, you, <laughs> you, know, you just keep looping back in uh, 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 and out the door. And the and at the end when he leaves the school, right? There's a that that whole part of it as well. But it's such a uh, simple but so powerful device to set up what Ged is about to experience, right? And to understand his beginning, his next step in understanding what true power is. Yeah, I think the doorkeeper is my favorite of all the masters. Go on. He seems to have very little to do but open and close doors. <laughs> but his, his insight and his wisdom is just profound. His patience is nearly endless. 
And he feels connected, deeply connected in the same way that the patterner is deeply connected, living in the grove the whole time. And I love the final lesson that he teaches him when he is about to leave. The doorkeeper says, sure, go ahead, leave. All you have to do is tell me my name. <laughs> and we've spent so many chapters seeing why this is just, you know, how do you do this? And he, Ged, you know, spends a night in the field pondering this. And then he walks up and says, nope, there's no way that I can do this. There's no spell. There's no overpowering. Unless you would be willing to answer a question. What is your name? <laughs> and he tells him his name. So, again, a lesson in power over is not the most powerful thing. Right. Just ask. Just ask. Just ask. Appeal. Yeah. Right? Do you the know? worst that can happen is you'll say no. Gosh, I'd like to live the rest of my life on rogue. <laughs> well, after they kind of clean up their act about women, yeah. <laughs> we'll get into that later. <laughs> so, I think in this... Section two, we also, um, we get introduced to Vetch and the, uh, yes. the OTAC. Yes. Which are two, um, it's like ice cream and pie. Like you don't, the pie is good, but unless you have some ice cream or some whipped cream or something or some yogurt or something like that to really offset it and having Vetch um, and the OTAC both like for me complete Ged's, uh, it, it makes it more interesting for me to have those characters to help to create the depth that um that i want to see get in and they're the only two intimate connections that he makes i mean you could argue you could argue ogian but that's you know that's still a master student that's different and it doesn't you know there's very little contact yeah i think vetch should also be called samwise here i mean he's he's the loyal friend <laughs> he helps him through everything he's a ride or die he gives him his true name. He's full trust right away, loyal as ever. Just, he's Samwise, right? And his house is, is a cross between Rivendell and Bagot. <laughs> it's true. There was something uh, that really struck me when in, in one passage uh, on uh, Roke Knoll, around Roke Knoll. And um, I don't know, it was just one of those weird flashes where I was like, oh, I'd never thought of it this way, that trees are this bridge, they're on this threshold between the seen and the unseen. So, you know, you have roots going down into the soil, but you have the branches going up into the sky, and then they're this um, mediator between mm -hmm. um, air and between these two elements, between air and, and earth. And uh, there was something about this idea of Roknoll where this where power resides, you know, and how trees are these connections between these two worlds. And then your staff is made of some, you know, a, a piece of wood as well. So that was another thing that really, I never considered that before this reading. Mm. And then that was a, a thought that jumped out. This book became very foundational for early pagan groups that were forming in the, in the late 60s and 70s, because of that very kind of imagery really? that you're talking about. The tree being a connection between earth and sky. I know uh -huh. of at least one group that right. called themselves imminent. So growth. the satanic panic was right. I'm just kidding. I'm no, just not kidding. exactly. No, <laughs> I'm just kidding. Pagans, because there is relax no if you're a pagan in the audience. <laughs> there is no Satan in Earthsea, and that's one of its strengths. There are powers, but there are powers that are part of the right. earth that have always been there. Right. 
And there are people who can or can't work with those powers. But there's no embodiment of evil any more than there's an embodiment of good, for that matter. Right. There is only balance. Exactly. So, let's talk about the shadow, because this is a big turning point in the book. Because before this, Ged is super powerful, right? He's almost a Mary Sue. Everything goes right for him. Nothing's ever wrong. He just he just breezes through everything. Sure, he has the little run-in that Ogion has to save him from before, but Ogion runs in at just the right time, and everything's fine. And this is where Ged is is permanently changed, it seems like. Yeah, physically yes. and, and psychologically. Right. He's scarred, and he, you know, psychologically, yeah. he's always looking behind him. He's always waiting for this impending doom and he's he's wondering he he has no solution for this right because even the masters the people who know the most about right. magic in this world are telling him there is no name some things just don't have a name and they're wrong <laughs> thank goodness <laughs> and i love the the setup that you know he goes out to the master namer before this all happens and so from a device standpoint we've been um bathed in and steeped in this um, system of magic where a pebble has a name, a sea has a name, the wind in this part of this island at this time of year has a name. And yet, so everything is there and the master namer is just writing and writing and writing all of these things. And yet, here is something that none of these uh, mages have any understanding of or idea that exists. And so it's a really great device to set the shadow up for being this thing that even Ged, um, you know, that not Ged as a young man, but, you know, even even the most powerful mage that the mages that there are could, you know, can understand. So it's, it's a really right. nice contrast. Right. Yeah, he is, he is changed immediately after once he's healed, which takes several months, in that he goes from being the top of the class to the bottom right. of the class. And yeah. his speech is clumsy, yeah. and his hand, his gestures are clumsy, and he, he really has to learn it all <laughs> over again. And I think this is the beginning of the wearing down of his. I don't want to call it ego. pride because pride isn't not all. Well, even ego is dangerous because if you don't have a healthy ego, then then you're going to be a sure. very dangerous being right, in the world. Sure. Um, it's it's call it. The competitiveness, I think it's the competitiveness, mm -hmm. the the desire to be best, the the you know the, yeah, and also the wanting to defeat. He wanted to defeat Jasper, right? And he had been pride and envy early on. You know, the masters were also impressed with him. He learned so quickly, and that kind of fooled them into thinking that he right. was ready for some of this stuff before he was right. So I think the Master Summoner has to take a little bit of responsibility for that. But this earlier conversation he had with the Master Hand, which is the the yeah. topic of illusion and changing, and Ged asks right. him, you know, well, sure, I can take this rock and I can make it look like a flame or a diamond or an egg or an eye. Illusion fools the beholder's senses. It makes him see and hear and feel that the thing is changed. But it does not change the thing. To change this rock into a jewel, you must change its true name. And to do that, my son, even to so small a scrap of the world, is to change the world. 
It can be done. Indeed, it can be done. It is the art of the master changer. And you will learn it when you are ready to learn it. But you must not change one thing, one pebble, one grain of sand, until you know what good and evil will follow on that act. The world is in balance, in equilibrium. A wizard's power of changing and of summoning can shake the balance of the world. It is dangerous, that power. It is most perilous. It must follow knowledge and serve need. To light a candle is to cast a shadow. Wow. So it seems to me the only need that Ged was serving when he went up onto Roke Mound and summoned, tried to summon a dead spirit, was his, his competitiveness. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted to defeat Jasper and have Jasper see that he had been defeated. And there was, that's not knowledge. Right. It's interesting as a parent to see little people driven and to have these kinds of things. So here I am as an, an adult and I've learned to, you know, moderate my desires and my impulses. And you see on the playground or in play dates and things like that where these kids are competitive and driving towards something that you as an adult are just looking at going, there's no cheese down the end of this uh, tunnel here. There's no purpose for this fight. There's Why are you trying to best this other person? But it's something that's built into us, and it's something that we have to um, deal with and learn to, to moderate. It's just built in. Pride and envy just come with the package of human emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think there's, you know, how do you, you, you can't defeat pride and envy. You have to yes. have acceptance and wholeness, right? You have to go, this is, this is me. And as you said, this is, you know, the scarring of Ged is, is the first time that he realizes that his right. actions have consequences. It's the first time Ogion wasn't there to save him. And, he, and I mean, even the person who did save him this time <laughs> died. You know, somebody died for his own right. mistakes. Yeah. It's interesting that the, this creature is, you know, th- this is the darkness of himself in his prideful moment, right? It's born of the seeking of, of besting somebody else. It's the end result of, of trying right. to win this battle that you're only going to find this, this darkness that is going to consume you. Right. And, and, and is only furthered by trying to defeat the darkness with the light, right? Instead of finding balance. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the candle does exactly. create a shadow. That doesn't mean the shadow is evil. Exactly. It's, it's, it's something that must be dealt with, named, taken in, acknowledged, recognized. If you're not aware that you can carry this thing, then you might not be aware that you're acting out of it. Right. Well, I think that's a good place to leave our discussion of the shadow. We've run long, folks. We've run expectedly long. Honestly, let's just stop pretending it's a surprise. (laughs) So we're going to come back next episode and finish this book. Be sure to write in your listener feedback if you haven't already, because now you get a second chance. Look at that. Book at thelorehounds.com or thelorehounds.com slash contact. As for our Patreon shoutouts, we have three Patreon tiers. The top one's 10 bucks a month, and people do that just to just to show up in our list at the end of the podcast and show their support. So thank you so much to 
Samartian, Cyrus, Mark H., Michael G., Michelle E., David W., Brian P., Nick W., S.C., Peter O.H., Bettina W., Adam S., Nancy M., Lavinia T., and Dork of the Ninjas. Thank you to all our patrons. I've noticed the numbers going up lately, so really excited to be growing our community. Programming notes very quickly. We've got three weekly podcasts going. The last episode of The Last of Us is coming out this week. That's our season wrap. Then we have The Mandalorian Season 3 and Ted Lasso Season 3 going every single week. We're having so much fun with those. You know, we've got science fiction. We've got feel-good football or soccer if you're a dirty American. If you want more books, check out Silmarillion Stories, which is coming out very soon. We do that every month. And... We will see you on the next Earthsea project. Thanks, everyone. The Lorehounds podcast is produced and published by The Lorehounds. You can send questions and feedback and voicemails at thelorehounds.com slash contact. Get early and ad-free access to all Lorehounds podcasts at patreon.com slash thelorehounds. Any opinions stated are ours personally and do not reflect the opinion of or belong to any employers or other entities. Thanks for listening. A new Star Wars journey begins in the place all good journeys begin. At, well, the beginning. This Star Wars day, I'm excited to introduce the new Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast, where we will piece together the complete story of that galaxy far, far away, in timeline order, from the dawn of the Jedi through the great unknown following the sequel trilogy. This is a podcast for both Star Wars superfans and complete newbies. Listen to the short intro episode now to hear how it works and what to expect over the coming weeks as we set the stage for the new television series The Acolyte, which we will be covering with weekly breakdowns. Subscribe to the Star Wars Canon Timeline podcast wherever you listen to take part in one of the most epic and expansive stories ever told, following all the twists and turns from start to finish. May the 4th be with you all, all month and beyond.